Blog Talk Radio. everybody and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Cover. I am your host John Robb and I'm waiting for my co-host Jeff Ayers. I'm actually texting with him now to see if he is okay. Um, but we have a great interview scheduled for you tonight. It was one that I did last week. Jeff was unable to do it with me. And um, right now we are being able to uh, interview Greg Isles and it looks like Jeff is not going to make it. So that's okay. So it's just going to be me, but um, I was able to do this last week, and it was an interview with best-selling author Greg Isles about his uh, book Cemetery Road. <clears throat> and I got to tell you, it was one of the best interviews I'd ever uh, I'd ever done, we'd ever had. And also, it was it was <laughs> it was actually kind of funny. I mean, Greg didn't really know what he was getting involved in, and he had told me right before that he had been doing interviews all day for this book. And he was kind of tired, and he just needed one that was just laid back and, you know, didn't really have a lot of thought. And I was like, oh, good, we don't really put a lot of thought into our stuff, so you've come to the right place. Um, But I want to remind everybody, of course, to let you know that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. So please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on what they got going on. So without any further ado, let's just jump into the interview again with the uh, first time on the show. We've had him in the magazine a couple of times, but this is the first time I was ever able to physically talk to him. But again, the book is on sale today, uh, March the 5th. When you hear the interview, I wasn't quite sure we were going to play it. So I mentioned March, March the 5th in there, but the book is available today. So whenever you listen to the show, uh, you can go buy it. And I suggest that you do. If Greg Isles is not on your reading list, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the hell you're reading. Because um, you got to make sure he's on there. So here we go, Greg Isles, take it away. So hello everybody, and it's great to be back here with you uh, again. We have a wonderful interview. So bad that, or so sad that Jeff Ayers can't join us. But we are so pleased to be able to finally be joined. We've interviewed him a couple times for the magazine via email uh, for a couple of his books. I know the Bone Tree uh, was one of them that we interviewed him for, which was great. And then uh, Natchez Burning. So, Greg Isles, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, John. Glad to be here, man. Hey, and the Cemetery Road uh, is out March the 5th, and so you're gonna the, this uh, episode that you're listening to is airing after March the 5th, so the book is available. So can okay. you do us a little favor and, and let us know what you got going on in Cemetery Road? <laughs> yeah, you mean just a little summary there, huh? Just a little bit, you know, just, just a little. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think this is. Cemetery Road opens a little uh, deceptively. I think when it starts, people think they're probably reading a classic mystery, but about 100 pages in, it takes a pretty serious turn. It's about a guy who is in a plight that a lot of people around my age are. He's very successful. He left the hometown of his youth as an 18-year-old, swearing Mm -hmm. he would never go back there. But because his father is dying, he's forced to go back and run the family newspaper waiting for his father to pass. And um, 
it's in the course of running that newspaper that he gets caught up in some crime in the in the small town he's from, and it has to do with the arrival of a Chinese paper mill in a town that's a lot like a lot of towns in the south and the midwest, a town that's a shell of the town that he left. It's full of desperate people who need jobs. But like all my books, John, the external plot is really <laughs> – Yet I like to do those things in detail. I like to immerse the reader in that, but that's not really what the book's about. You know, my books are really about human psychology. They're right. about, in this case, I think about the secrets that people keep, parents and children, husbands and wives, even siblings. You know, those are the, that's, what, that's what drives so much of human behavior, and people don't even realize it. You know, we look at people around us and we go, why are they doing that? Or why is my brother doing that? Or exactly. why is this happening in my town? And it's it's because of things you don't know, you know. Well, so, and, see, yeah. and, and and the good thing about like Marshall is somebody like myself can definitely relate because I grew up in a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. Of course, not a small town, but you know the suburb was kind of a small town, and I vowed I would never go back and live there. And, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I wanted to get out of Ohio. So we moved to Minnesota, and now we're out in Los Angeles where, you know, you pay for paradise, but it's it's pricey, but it's worth it. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, it's great because, you know, like almost every 18-year-old, they're like, I don't want to be stuck in this small town. And northeast Ohio, they have the same kind of problems. You know, there's steel places up in Youngstown. And, and, and you hear all about those stories like that. And, and so Marshall is one of those characters that a lot of people can definitely relate to. Man, I did an interview. I was interviewed by somebody from Steubenville today. Who oh, yeah. In, in Toledo. I know Steubenville they, real well. <laughs> yeah, they grew up in Steubenville, and, and they were, Steubenville, and they were saying, you wouldn't believe how much I related to this story. Oh, yeah. That, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm surprised he's probably still there in Steubenville. That's a uh, poor, poor guy. Um, <laughs> but, you know. So I'm, but, yeah. but I'm glad. I, I think that makes it universal. You know, everybody can understand it, even if they're not from a small Mississippi town. They you know, there's that that great Don Henley song, The End of the Innocence, and one yeah. line in there is, somewhere back there in the dust, that same small town in each of us. You know, we all exactly. we all left somewhere like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like an 80s John Cougar Mellencamp song. I mean, let's face it, everything was nice and small <laughs> and, you know, yeah, stuck in Indiana right. and Ohio. <laughs> that's right, man. You got it, you know? Uh-huh. Well, now, you know, hey, it was nice and small if you happened to be a white dude. Uh, if you happened to be a woman or a black guy or something, it maybe wasn't as nice as you and I remember. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. It was definitely a little different kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, but, but, but the great thing, like you said, because the psychology of, of the characters is, is something that you, definitely that, that you're known for by, by diving into to people to kind of see how they are, kind of how they react. And is that one of the biggest things that kind of brings you back every time to, to kind of write a book is you're really excited kind of about how the characters are going to kind of react to you when you start writing them? You know what? For me, it, it even starts that way, John. I mean, to me, I don't sit around and outline the plot of a book. In fact, I go a lot of the year without writing anything, and it's like passively working itself out in my mind while I do other things. Uh, mm-hmm. Stephen King has a great metaphor for that about – a writer's mind being like a house and the sub your subconscious is the basement of the house and there are all these unlabeled crates down there and your job is to just leave them alone because there's a crew down there working on them, right? And you just stay out of their way. So these potentials, people I've known, parts of my own self, things that I know, things I've learned along the way, all that's in there like a 
to, and when it starts to come together, man, what you're left with are the the beginnings of the people you see. And and here's the most important thing, John. You know every book and every film, it's not made by the protagonist, man. It's made by the antagonist. Star Wars isn't about it isn't Luke Skywalker that makes Star Wars great. No, it's and Darth, Darth Vader. Vader. Right? And so when you, you got to arrive at this sort of animating dark principle of a particular novel. And, you know, in the trilogy, it was the, the offshoot of the Ku Klux Klan that was very much based in reality. And in this mm-hmm. case, the poker club, there's something like that in every town, man. There's, when, oh, you yeah. know, when, you're a, when you're a young guy... You think, you know, you think the mayor and the city councilman run the city. When you finally get some idea of how life really works, you find out, oh, hell no, man, it's the guys with the money uh-huh. or the, the old family that's been there seven, eight generations and has all the contacts. If you're from a steel town, it's the steel companies. If you're from Kentucky, it's the coal companies. Yep. You know, you got that's who determines people's fate, man, and that's what Marshall bumps up head first into in this story. You know, the old guys from his place who want it just the way they want it, and he's messing that up for them. And from there, the, the sort of exterior drama happens. And you and I, I, mean, I if both you wanna, know. If you want to look movies again, I mean, that's the same thing of Roadhouse. You know, yeah, the guy who ran that town, I mean, he ran that town. He did anything he wanted. He's driving across the road, doesn't care who's there. He's just meandering, and he... He does whatever the hell he wants, but he's not a mayor or a governor or anything like that. He's just a rich guy that's like, I have more money than you, so I do what I want. Well, it's like the mayor worked for him. And look, think about the DiCaprio. The mayor probably paid protection to him. That's right. Think of the Leonardo DiCaprio, Howard Hughes movie when when he's testifying as Howard Hughes and he's talking to Alan Alda, the senator, and says, he's talking about the head of Pan Am, and he says, well, he acts like you work for him, <laughs> you know, a mm-hmm. U.S. senator like your own salary. So, anyway, without getting too far out, it's funny well, that you mentioned a movie like Roadhouse because we can look at that as a like a silly, superficial thing, but Roadhouse works because it essentially follows the rules of the old classic Western, you know? Yeah. Uh, the lone guy comes to town to clean up the town, and the bad guy's there, and the townspeople are afraid. That's a simple formula, but it works. You know? Yeah. You know, and I'm glad and I'm glad you brought up the villain aspect because I talk about that all the time. I always say when you watch James Bond or you read Ian Fleming, you always know James gonna make it. The question is is what kind of villain does he have to tackle or what kind of organization does he have to get through in order to find the answers? And that's where a lot of authors kind of miss the boat. They work so hard on this protagonist part. It's like you're missing the real tension part. That's right, man. And ideally, John ideally the antagonist should actually be a little more powerful than the hero. And usually you get to that because the antagonist doesn't feel confined to follow any rules. You know, he can, he can basically break every rule and be okay with it. Whereas the hero kind of has to stick within some certain bounds. I mean, you can have an anti-hero, but the, the other thing that's simple, simple, but true is a lot of writers just miss the obvious reality that the villain is the hero of his own yeah. story. Any yeah. villain doesn't think he's the villain. He thinks he's the hero. Right. You know? Yeah. And so, I mean, anyway, I, this is drama. This is drama 101, but, it, but a lot of guys miss it, you know? It is. And, you know, and, and the poker club aspect was so perfect uh, and so mixed in with it. But then when you get the history and then you reach it 
a bit, you know, beyond the borders into D.C. and into those kinds of places, you just see, you, you, you know, you kind of see, you think it's small town, but then you kind of made it, you know, big town and big city. Yeah, well, uh, you're right. I think that was important, John. And let me tell you, that's based on reality, man. A lot, Even a lot of people not from my part of the country remember the U.S. Senate, remember, is based on seniority. So even rural states like Mississippi and places like that, they kept sending the same senator back for 30, 40 years. And you yep. had guys like like John Stennis and Big Jim Eastland. I mean, that's how you get things like a space center in Mississippi, man, because, <laughs> because, because you have stroke all the way up to the U.S. Senate, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, so, but, yeah, I think that helped make it not, not feel as small town. But, again, you and I both know we're still talking – about the exterior trappings and the sort of, like you say, the Western sort of conventions, yeah. man. The real heart of this thing is Marshall and his best friend and the fact that they both love the same woman, and there's some serious secrets in this thing that the, that the woman is keeping, you know? I mean, and how, and how much did that surprise you when you were writing it? Because, like you said, you don't outline. So as far as everything goes, you know, things didn't kind of progress to you until you kind of started getting into it. So how shocked were you when you kind of realized this is the way it was going to go? No, invert, invert that thinking, John. The whole thing really was born out of that secret that she's keeping. The whole oh. story came from that, and everything else came after, okay? And, okay? and think about it. That's the natural thing because, really, the deepest level of this story is, well, there's the relationship of the – hero with his father, but the deepest level is really between he and his friend, who I don't want to give spoilers, but we both know they spent time in Iraq together right. in combat, and yet they have this sort of very terrible tension between them, and you feel like the best friend, if he found out the truth, could, could blow up and kill the protagonist at any time. And I feel like in the terms we're talking, people are going to think this is like a simplistic, simplistic action story, and I don't think it is that. But no, but the consequences are very physical. I mean, it isn't just a navel gazing type of psychological story, you know? Right. Oh yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt, I, I can, I definitely can, could see, you know. And the one thing that when I was kind of getting through was it was just it was kind of the journey that was going on, and you would think you and you kind of thought you were going down one path, and then all of a sudden it kind of switched into something else. And I don't yeah. know if you kind of were, you know, I don't know if those twists were planned or if it was, like I said, just something that kind of came out. You know where the book takes really a sharp turn? And I sort of knew it was coming, but I didn't know where. The night of the party in the hotel when Jerry Lee Lewis plays at the party and things start to sort of go bad that night mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. second victim gets killed. I right. think that's when, re- that's like a hundred and something pages in. And I think readers at that point go, Okay, wait a second. There's a whole different thing going on here than I thought was going on here. This isn't yeah. like a murder mystery, you know? Yeah. Now, but, but then when you, the fan. Yeah. But when you get to the end, man, where, you know, the, one, the woman that they love, Jet Matheson, starts telling what she says is the truth, and a day later you find out it's not, and she tells another version of the truth. And by the time you get to the end and your jaw just hits the floor and goes, no way, man. She didn't do that. No way. You know? Exactly. But, uh, I don't I don't even want to comment on where that came from. But I, I really hope, John, I use I don't I don't sit around and try to think of twist endings or things like that. 
But I will be really surprised if anybody guesses, you know, the thing that right. she finally reveals she really did, you know? Oh, yeah. There's, I, I, you know, and I'm sure some people will or some people will lie and say they did, but I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. Somebody could say, "Oh yeah." I, I, oh, I saw that coming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Fucking liar. It didn't happen. That way. <laughs> okay. So this is like HBO. We can say whatever we want. Oh, dude, you just we do whatever we got to do, man. This is this is this is the way we roll. Again, these two guys sitting at the bar. We're just drawing it out. Oh, that's awesome, man. Okay. Well, I'll I'll, yeah. I will be unbridled then. Okay. <laughs> you know. Now, when you kind of. You know, when you kind of look back, I guess, at your start, and we're kind of got, you know, go back a little to the beginning and kind of work your way up in, until now, did you kind of envision that this was kind of going to be like the writing that you were going to do? Is this what you kind of set out to want to kind of be? No, John. I mean, uh, I'm kind of atypical, man, among the, the writers that I know. You know, people ask about the moment you decided to become a writer or what it was you were trying to do. Listen, man, writing was just something that I could just always do. I didn't want to do it particularly, but teachers all along the way would just say, you know, you, you got this gift, man. You know, you ought to do something. Man, that wasn't going to help me get a date or anything. I didn't see what the value of that was, man. I was playing guitar and having fun, right? And the guitar would get you laid more than the book, let's face it. Yeah, that's just, yeah, you can. I mean, John Lennon said that, and a lot of other musicians have said that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll go with that. And uh, But, man, when I was 29 years old, I was married. I've been married for a year. I was playing 50 weeks a year on the road, and I was making like 30 grand. And I'm yeah. like, there's no way this is going to – there's no future in this, man. I'm never going to be staying, okay, you know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to get a real job. So what did I do, man? I said, what is it What is it that I can do? I've got a worthless college degree. And I said, you know what I can do, man? I can write. I locked myself in an 8 by 10 room. <clears throat> for 12 months, bro, I had no money, nothing, no. student loans. And I said, I'm, I'm going to write a bestseller in a year or I'm going to, you know, get a real job, man. And uh, I did it. It took me a little longer than a year, but that first one. And and I started out, I'll tell you, this is another thing, man, and I, I hate to admit it. You know, the old dictum is write what you know, right? Man, oh, yeah. I calculatedly wrote what I thought would be a bestseller. You know, that was the days of, like, Jack Higgins and Frederick Forsyth and Ken Follett, right? Mm-hmm. So I wrote those two World War II novels, and they worked. So I tell you, the moment of truth, man, was after that second book. You know how this business works, man. You get a bestseller. What do the publishers want you to do? They want you to keep doing the Cranking same. about every year. Every year, rewrite the same book over and over again. Yep. And I just said, you know what? If I write another World War II book, I'm the next Jack Higgins, man. I can't. I can't do it. So the next one, Mortal Fear, I just took a hard left turn and yanked it over to Mississippi. And, you know, it was a bumpier road, but thank God I did it, man, because it, I mean, at this point, if you go back over my catalog, I've written about the Holocaust, artificial intelligence, childhood sexual abuse, just just all, all over the map. And not many yeah. writers get to do that. I mean, the only way you get to do that is if, you manage, in spite of your decisions, to sell at least as many on the new book as you did on the last one. If you get in a downward sort of trend, you're dead, John. I remember in like 94, 95, I'd be going through somewhere like Dallas. And I won't say names, but I'd be on a TV show, like a you know a local show, Texas or somewhere, with a hardcover best-selling novelist thinking, man, this guy's really made it. 
let me tell you, man, I hadn't heard those guys' names in 15 years, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like music, bro. It's like it's, it a, it's, a, it's a tough business, you know. You're yeah, only I, as good as your last thing. And I talk music a lot on here because it's there's so many parallels to it. And you just like you said, there's only one band that I could really think of. And and I and I interviewed Stephen King once, so I know I'm sure you know this band because it's the one band he said he would always want to play with if he if he could. But ACDC is about the only band I know of that kind of has done like the same album kind of over over over. I mean, they're like the only ones. They've never really gotten off their and it's been successful. Yeah. But other bands have tried and it never really works. Everybody has to experiment. Otherwise, you kind of get stale. And I think that yeah. happens with an author. And I think you see that in series. I mean, I won't name names either. I think we all know that when you write 25 books about the same character, it's getting a little stale at times. I mean, it yeah, is. John, man, you got it, bro. Look, I'm telling you, I won't name names either. And there are series that I like. But there are some series guys, I'm telling you, that have they ripped off their own work. I'll find whole paragraphs of backstory or description listed from an earlier book and put in, like, book number 16 or book number 11, you know? And, because, look, in no human life, no, it's not, life isn't like murder she wrote, you know? In one life, there's not one murder a week every week or one murder a month, and you just keep, that's not how life is. No. And if that's the way you're going to write, you're just, you're just giving people a fantasy escapism that really has no tie. Now, having right. said that, you know, I, I wouldn't let you pry my Travis McGee away from me with a knife, you know. I mean, some series, man, they just, they're down in that good vibe and they know how to do it. And, look, not everyone is as good as the last one, but the guy's working on something bigger than just the Travis McGee isn't about whatever silly plot he's involved in. Man, it's all these observations about Florida and human nature and way ahead of his time, environmentalism and stuff like that. I mean, just uh, those guys I respect. Patrick O'Brien, man, the master and commander stuff. I mean, I could get lost in that. That's a series. Mm-hmm. But he's always pushing, man, pushing the envelope. And uh, these days you don't get that. These days you get guys just going back to the well, back to the well. You yeah, get yeah, yeah. And, and, their, and their antagonist is dealing with the most diabolical killer they've ever faced. Yeah, you said that ten yeah. the last ten books on the back of every book. Yeah, man, I want. And that's kind of where I get. And that's where I get lost. I want antagonist to be a guy that we. I mean, look at this book, man. Hell, the Marshall. best friend, Paul. I mean, you know, everybody is flawed. The hero's flawed. Yes. Paul, for God's sake, he starts out as the antagonist, and I. T- you want to know what surprised me? In this book. By the end, Paul was starting to feel a little bit like the hero, and I'll tell you why. I have a failing, man, in des- in designing my heroes in the last few years because both Penn Cage and Marshall McEwen have a flaw. I don't think I have this flaw, but they do. Men, they're thinkers, they're observers more than they're men of action, you know? Right. I mean, they're a writer, a journalist, a lawyer, whereas Paul, this ex-military guy, I mean, think about it. When you finally get in the last quarter of the book, and they get into the shit. Yeah, they get into the shit. They're real, yeah, it's him. He's the guy who's going to say, hey, man, a good plan today is better than yeah. a perfect plan tomorrow. Let's kill this son of a bitch, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, man, it's good to do a wide-open interview, man. I'm telling you, just sitting there talking <laughs> in a box is uh, 
Yeah, I mean, and, and this is and this is what makes it fun because you know I I don't like the stuffiness and and we try to change things up because I like authors to kind of be themselves and sometimes you get authors on here and you know I'm not gonna lie and they're just and they just give you like the a blah 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 and I'm like I'm telling you this way if you're this fucking boring on an interview people are gonna think your books are boring so you better not <laughs> be that fucking boring I've told a lot of people that I'm like don't be boring. You know, you write thrillers, you, you better not be boring because people are going to think that that's the way that you kind of write. You know, whether it's right or wrong, that's just what people think. I mean, hell, I mean, people think that, what, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper are now married. It's like, no, they're just, you know, acting. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's not freaking yeah. real life. They're working it, man. Look, I had a woman ask me today to tell tell her about uh, reading. You know, tell me about reading, you know, when you go on tour. And I said, all right, first, I don't read, Okay. <laughs> They got the book. Why do they want to see me stand up there reading what they got in their hand, man? I'm yeah. there. I need to give them something they don't get in the book. Right. I said, sometimes I take a guitar. Sometimes I say, nobody turn on a recording device because I'm going to get a little crazy and I don't want to hear it on the Internet in 15 <laughs> minutes. You know, I mean, you know, you got to make it real. Now, what do you play? You play Les Paul? Uh, well, you know, really, man, I came up as an acoustic player. Now, in the Rock Bottom Remainders, Right. With Stephen King and Dave Barry and everybody, I play uh, – usually I play a strap. Now, one time oh, okay. with uh, Gibson sponsored our tour, and we got to buy uh, we got to buy whatever Gibson we wanted for, like, cost plus 10 or close to cost. Man, I got a Gibson Les Paul Black Beauty, like a $7,000 guitar, man. And nice. I, I, play, I got to play uh, – they asked me. Stephen King was wanting to do something new. You know, usually he'll do, like, the Ramones or something he really digs. Mm-hmm. And the, and Steve was like, what do you want to do? And they asked me, and I said, man, we're going to do Don't Fear the Reaper. I got to hear Steve do the song out of the stand, right? I just And they're like, we can't play that. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, I can play yeah, that. Yeah, you can. Like, we're going to do it. And so we did it. And let me tell you what Steve does, man. He shows up. He's singing it. He brings a cowbell out there like Christopher Walken in the thing <laughs> in the Saturday Night Live. And I'm up there playing, and Steve's yelling, more cowbell, more cowbell. Oh my lord! I'm like, man, this is a fantasy come true right here. This is this is as good as it gets, you know. You know, I I'm a huge guitar guy. I I I used to play a long time ago, but I'm a massive guitar guy, man. I love guitar players. I mean, all you know, the Satrianis and the Vi and the Ingves and and, and oh, anything wow. and everything. Yeah. I love them all. I mean, who's like your go-to? Well, look, you, you and I have different tastes. I respect those guys. Let me tell you what kind of guitar guy I am, man. What do you got? I play mostly baritone acoustics. I have three built from the ground up from Rare Woods by a guy who died at 50 in California, Lance McCollum, man. And uh, that's what I'm into, man. Now, you know, who do I really like to listen to? Give me the give me Larry Carlton playing the solo from Kid Charlemagne, you know, Steely Dan. Okay. That's what I like to listen to, you know. Okay. Okay. You're I like, nah, that. nah, that's wimpy. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, th- there's a lot of great guitar players that people don't even know about. I mean, when you're talking like, I, you know, guys like a Steve Lukather. I mean, he's played with everybody and and anybody oh, yeah. and everybody. But you you mention his name and people are like, who? And you're like, yeah, the guy who freaking plays in Toto. And they're like, oh, you mean like Africa? And I'm like, dude, listen to their freaking albums. If I mean, the guy rips it. And so, uh, you know, I mean, uh, so I love all that. Sh- I love all that shit. And I yeah, people don't know love who all those Steve people. Luke- yeah, if people don't know who Steve Lukather is, they don't know anything about guitar, man. Nothing, you know. 
Uh, and I tell okay. you, I'm, I'm in my office today, and I'm literally playing Journey, and I'm in my office, and there was a, and, and the guy comes in, and I go, and he asked me a question. And I said, I'll answer that if you can tell me who this is. Literally, no freaking clue who that, and they're like, I don't know. And I go, get out of my office if you don't even know who the hell Journey is. Like, <laughs> Man, let me, let me tell you what I do in my spare time, man. I'm going to put out a little video of uh, footage. My son's like a – he's at UVA, but he's like an indie filmmaker, and I got a lot of really cool footage. And um, I, in my spare time, man, I'm working on music with uh, a buddy of mine from this little town – is the tour guitar was the tour guitar player for uh, Don Henley, Billy Joel, Jackson oh, Brown. Nice. Uh, you know he knew Lucifer and all those guys. He can oh, kill, yeah. man. And we we've been working on music and look, I have more fun doing that than almost anything I can think of. You know. Yeah, I mean, there's some session guys that are so good that no one even really knows that play on albums, but they don't go out and play live. And you see those guys all the time, and they just rip it. They just rip it. Anything and everything. When, they just pick it up and they when just go playing. Yeah, when you see guys like that, the only negative for me is it makes you want to quit. It makes you go, uh, okay, <laughs> does it make you want to get better? Me? It makes you want to quit? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Well, look, I'll tell you who I really admire, man. I, I got to know a guy when I was 18. He's from Mississippi. He's a songwriter in Nashville, but he was just voted, wait for it, CMA Musician of the Year for the 10th time in a row beating Chet Atkins. That's how good this guy is, okay? Okay. And I was just over in Muscle Shoals. I had to sign 2,000 books at uh, the Book a Million Warehouse. And they're right by Muscle Shoals, man. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start spending some time over there, man. That's where, like, Jason Isbell's from and some of these uh-huh. new country guys. And I'm not a country guy, but there's some cool things happening, you know. Well, you're going, hey, you're in Mississippi, so when are you going to go to the crossroads? <laughs> man, I've, been, I've been up there. Now, uh-huh. we're not doing a book. We're not doing a book interview, but this is a good bar interview, man. This is a music that, yeah. Interview. I mean, it's all about book. It's all about you. That's what we're trying to get. It's all about you, man. And look, I will tell you this: there is no question in my mind that music informed all my writing. First mm-hmm. of all, because it's about the rhythm of the language, man. And there are a lot of people in this business who don't understand that. I've had editors before make this or that suggestion, and I'm like. Like you in your office today, I'm like, you don't see why that doesn't work, man. Read that aloud. You don't hear that? Yeah. That doesn't, yeah. You're throwing the rhythm out, man, you know? But it's something they don't really see, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's something about being in that environment, man, having been on stage, seeing what works. And, and man, think about, think about songwriting, man. Think about guys like freaking John, John Prine or somebody who in yeah. three verses can rip your freaking heart out. And there's guys that write a 200,000-word novel and can't come close to the emotion in three verses of one of those right. songs, you know? Right. A four-minute song can be just as emotional as a 400-page book, without a doubt. It can. It absolutely can. It can last Bring you longer. To tears. And it, that's exactly right, man. Bring and, you uh, and I know, you know, a lot of writers, you know, just in the remainders, man, we, you know, we always joke about it and say the band's terrible and all that. But we really, over the years, we've gotten – Several guys in the band now are former musicians, and you know Roger McGuinn from the Birds plays most of the gigs with us. And oh, cool! Look, you're not going to get up there and play those Bird songs and have them sound like shit, man. You gotta, exactly. you gotta make it work, you know. Exactly. So, and so what I'm saying is, you know, even Steve, man, these guys have a musical sensibility, and, and the, the emotion that's there in music, it profoundly affected them growing up. 
Yeah. And they'd still give their left, you know what, man, just to be out on that stage interacting with people. Because think, John, here's the difference, man. When you're a musician, you're out there in front of people. The emotional feedback is like this uh, just neuro-oxytocin loop, man, between you and the audience. It's instantaneous. It's that feedback every night. When you're writing a book, what do you do? You're sitting in a room by yourself for a year. Two years, no feedback, no nothing. Nothing. That is, that's a sucky way to create, <laughs> man, you know? I know. I mean, you might have beta readers or your family or whatnot and, and maybe giving you some help. But, yeah, for, for the most part, you know, the, the, you send it off to your editor, and that's kind of like the first time you start hearing some feedback of change this or whatever, do this. But then when the book drops and then it hits the public, then you really start kind of figuring out, all right, did I do it? What did I not? You know, and then you start getting the feel of what they think, and then you start seeing. And now, today's day and age, everything is instantaneous. You know, 20 years ago, you still had to wait to kind of start seeing if it was going to get a groundswell and how things were going to work. You're exactly right, John. And then there's this dimension to it. When you get to the point that you said, the book drops, you go out on tour to promote it, then you become like an actor. Think about the actors you always saw on Letterman or Johnny Carson or whatever, man. They'll say, so tell us about this movie. And the biggest honest actors, you know what they would say? They'd say, you know, actually, I'm filming my next movie, and I don't even really, you know, I don't have much to say about that movie. And they're like, well, surely you've seen it. And they're like, no, no, you know, I hadn't seen it. I mean, by the time you go out to promote it, man, I'm already thinking about my next work. That's what I'm into, you know? Yeah, you're already writing it. Yeah, at least mentally, man. That's yeah. where your head is. And when you when you oh. when you interview an author that has a series, you're interviewing about this one. Well, the other, the next book in the series is already written with the editor, and they're already thinking about the next one. So it's kind of difficult. And a lot of musicians never go back and listen to their stuff again once they've recorded it. I mean, I think uh, was it Eddie Van Halen who said when he went on tour for one when they were doing like Van Halen three. He had to totally go back and like listen to like women and children first or whatnot because he goes, I totally forgot what I played. Like I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And not only that, man, because you're evolving, you don't. You know, I, there's a couple of my early books I can go back to, and I'm I get a pleasurable little jolt because I realized back then I had enough time to really concentrate more than I do now on the yeah. actual writing, and sometimes I get a pleasurable feeling. But man, usually. It's torture to go back. You don't yeah. – you, look, you've done that. There's just nothing to be gained by doing that. you got to go right. forward. It's like a shark. you got to swim, man, to stay alive. Right. Well, Greg, I want to tell you it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Um, and so I guess gregisles.com is the best place for everyone to find everything out about you. Your website is fantastic, and it's really easy to follow. Cemetery Road is out March 5th, so, of course, when you hear this interview, you'll be able to go buy the book, and you can pre-order it anyway, So, but you can go buy the book on March 5th, uh, March 5th, Cemetery Road. But, Greg, I want to thank you so much for coming out. It's been an absolute pleasure. You come on anytime you want, and we don't even have to talk books, because I'll talk music for hours and hours on end um, with no problem. But if you're at Thriller Fest... Maybe we can get together and say hi or whatever and, and, and meet yeah, up. Yeah, let's do that. The next one I go to, we'll get together. And i got to tell you, man, this is the most unusual interview I've ever done, but it's been the most fun because we're not just doing that by-the-numbers stuff, you know? No. Yeah, this is not paint-by. I don't do a paint-by-numbers interview. I like, to, I like to get to know who the author is outside the pages because I can read the book and understand what the book is, but I don't know who Greg Isles is, and that's what I like to find out, who you are. 
All right. And now you got a better idea anyway. And now and we got an idea. listeners do too. All Absolutely. right, bro. I had fun. Anytime you want to talk, I'm up for it, okay? All right, man. I will make sure that I will be blowing up Danielle's email. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, man. Take it All easy. right, man. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.